0: The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears.
1: I'm Steve Allman.
0: I'm Cheryl Strayed.
1: This is Dear Sugars.
2: Oh, dear
1: song, won't you please Share some little sweet days with me Every day. Oh, the sugar my
0: way. Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So we're going to talk about sex today. Mm, sort a, of. Kind of non-sex sex. Yes. I'm sad to report. But this is something really I think a lot of couples, especially in long-term relationships face, and certainly in our inbox, we have a lot of people writing to us, not saying, you know, oh, one sex struggle or another, but saying our struggle is that we're not having sex, mm-hmm. sometimes for years on end, sometimes just, you know, barely over the course of many months, and a lot of people are suffering Uh, from this predicament. They love their partner. They feel uh, sometimes connected in all kinds of ways, emotional, psychological, great friends, great parents together, and they're just not connecting in bed.
1: I have to say that it, it reminds us when we look at our inbox, there are these topics that are so huge that they dare not speak their name. One of them, as we've talked about, is maternal ambivalence. I think sexless marriages are marriages in which erotic intimacy is almost come to a standstill is another crime that dare not speak its name. That is, there are so many people suffering with it, but they feel so fraught and ashamed of it that they don't talk about it. Um,
0: yeah. I
1: have to say that that as I, I thought about the show, a couple of literary passages immediately sort of popped into my head. And I want to read them to you, Cheryl, because they're so extraordinarily different in their tone, but they seem to me to be driving at the same essential crisis, which has to do with the way that we consecrate intimacy through our erotic connection and what happens how, how deeply we struggle when we, when we feel we can't get that from our partner anymore. Um, I'll start with a little passage from this new novel by one of my favorite writers, Matthew Clam. I love him. Yeah. And, and see, he wrote an amazing book of stories called Sam the Cat. I teach these stories all the time in, in my classes. And I've been waiting for him to write a novel for several years. And he wrote the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. It's called Who is Rich? That is All about, again, from the male's perspective, um, what it is like to be in a long-term monogamy and try to keep it alive. He writes about this with such incredible eloquence and precision. just want to read one little passage. What was the point of having a body? Intellectual life was not so satisfying that we could afford to relinquish the physical. The simple act of, or I should say, when two people who, for whatever reason, Or maybe it was more about the ability to give pleasure, if that's what married people are up to. Or maybe it's just the raw power of sex to cleanse and heal the body and mind, to simplify, soften, maybe clarify a complicated, heavy relationship, to make strong what is often rough or broken, while putting a fine and graceful point on the coarse and bumbling flesh while gently nourishing the other, while somehow loosening oneself from the hunger. Hey, around here we didn't get enough of that. But just to hold the other and be held in return until the boundaries melt and our bodies hover, float, become weightless in that zero time of unclocked moments, we didn't do a lot of that either. Hmm. That to me is, is, is not just, as we'll get into, it's not just about a lack of sex. It's about a lack of a certain kind of intimacy mm-hmm. that is physical and erotic. And I wanted to contrast that account of monogamy and its discontents with a totally different kind of passage that also popped into my head from the novel Mrs. Bridge by Evan S. Connell. I think he's describing the same thing. This is India Bridge talking about the earliest moments of her marriage. For a while after their marriage she was in such demand that it was not unpleasant when he fell asleep. Presently, however, he began sleeping all night, and it was then she awoke more frequently and looked into the darkness, wondering about the nature of men, doubtful of the future, until at last there came a night when she shook her husband awake and spoke of her own desire. Affably he placed one of his long white arms around her waist, she turned to him then contentedly, expectantly, and secure. However, nothing else occurred, and in a few minutes he had gone back to sleep. That was the night Mrs. Bridge concluded that while marriage might be an equitable affair, love itself was not.
0: <laughs> I, You know, I love that passage. I love both passages, but, you know, I think it brings up a really interesting, important point. I think a lot of people when we talk about sexless relationships are thinking it's the woman who is not wanting to have sex anymore. And it's the man who's always hungry for sex. And I can tell you in both my life experiences with with friends and you know people who have confided in me about their sex lives and also a peek into our inbox. This really is yeah. it goes both ways. So why don't we dig in to one of the letters Start some of this hard work. Let's do it. Dear Sugars, I'm writing to you with a problem I'm too ashamed to admit to anyone else. I'm in a sexless relationship. I'm a woman in my early 30s, and my partner, a man, doesn't have sex with me. In the four years we've been together, we've never had penetrative sex. We've been sexually intimate in other ways, but since we moved in together a year ago, this has dried up to the point that our sex life is non-existent. I say that my partner doesn't have sex with me, Rather than doesn't want to, or that he isn't interested, because he tells me that he does want to and that he is interested. He just doesn't. I can't remember the last time he initiated intimacy, and he rejects my attempts, often by physically pushing me away from him. I stopped trying a couple of months ago when I got tired of cajoling him and to letting me give him oral sex. I enjoy it, and I know he does too, but I felt humiliated because he would never pleasure me in return. Conventional wisdom, by which I mean the internet, tells me our relationship is irreparably broken and that I should leave, while my partner tells me to stay. He tells me that he loves me more than life, that I'm beautiful and that he's sexually attracted to me. He cries at my pain and says he's sorry. He says he wants us to have an amazing sex life together. I used to believe him, but it's been 10 months since I first raised this issue with him, and things have only gotten worse. Not only is our sex life completely dead, he's unwilling to open up about it or talk about how we could address the issue. When I raise the possibility of couples counseling, he shuts down. I feel like he's emotionally stonewalling me, and this is harder and more hurtful than the lack of sex itself. It's like being in a relationship with a closed door that tells you you're welcome to come in even as it shuts you out. There are so many other complicating factors I don't know where to begin. Neither of us had much sexual experience before this relationship, and we both started out sex-shy and nervous. He's always struggling to see himself as desirable. As our physical intimacy has slowly died, I've started feeling that way about myself as well. He works a job that makes him miserable, and I see in him a lot of signs of depression, which I also have. It's hard for him to articulate his needs or admit vulnerability. Dear Sugars, Can you see any way for us to move out of this dry and desolate place? I hate who I'm becoming. I'm swelling up like a huge, ugly balloon, so full of hurt and frustration that I'm about to burst. I need sex in my relationship like I need oxygen. Increasingly, I struggle with thoughts of cheating, usually with married men who I know are frustrated with their wives. And yet, I don't want to leave. I love my partner deeply, and I treasure his presence in my life. Is there a path for us? to a place of intimacy and connection? Or do I need to face the fact that it's time for me to move on and hope there's a better love out there for me? Yours sincerely, About to Burst.
1: Oh my. Um, I am so sorry About to Burst. And, it, you know, one of the things that really, I think you have your finger on it is when you write that it, what really is bumming you out is the emotional stonewalling. That's harder than the lack of sex itself. And and we, we have your version of it, so we don't know exactly what his version of the conversation would be or the crisis, but it's clear that you're not communicating to one another uh, openly and honestly about what you want to have happen. And that's okay. That happens in all relationships. But then the question is, what can be done about it? And to me, the most ominous sign here is that he is not willing to do the work. When you bring up the idea of getting into counseling, he shuts that down. It sounds like this entire realm is freighted with shame, but it has to do with self-love and a feeling of self-worth. And your partner sounds like somebody who is either depressed or exhibiting a lot of those symptoms, who is um unable to articulate his needs or admit his vulnerability. And those are essentially the crucial things that would allow him and you together to recognize that it's not okay for a partner, either partner, to be in such a state of obvious, desperate want that something has to be done about it. And the erotic realm is just a symptom of a deeper crisis that you would be marrying into if you commit to this person. I'm not so hung up on the stats. Oh, well, four years with non-penetrative sex, it's not which sex acts and with what frequency, it's the amount of time that you're able to access the erotic imagination and go to that place together to establish that particular kind of intimacy that comes from erotic contact. And that only happens when somebody is willing to recognize it's not working and we need help. If your partner's not willing to do that work with you, I, I have to say that it doesn't, there's no hope.
0: Yeah, I agree. I th- you know, That's it. I mean, that, that question needs to be answered immediately. And I, I wouldn't suggest that you uh, give him a lot of time to think about this. You've already repeatedly told him that you're not happy uh, about this big part of your relationship, and he's repeatedly shut you down. So he's telling you something that, you know, you, you really have already received enough information Frankly, if, if you want to end this relationship based on that, I think that um, that makes some sense. If you want to give it another try, I would say that you tell him how serious it is, that it is a deal killer. I, I do think when he's confronted with that kind of seriousness, he might say, OK, I will work with you on it. And I do think that there is all kinds of hope for you if he's willing to open himself up to it. The other thing I want to say is, uh you know, I, I guess I'll maybe differ a bit from Steve. I understand, Steve, what you're saying about, you know, it doesn't matter how many times and what what acts you did. Um, You know, yes, you, you don't want to bean count when it comes to your relationship. Mm-hmm. But it is, I think it's a little weird that they haven't had penetrative sex weird. in four years. And yeah. I think that it sounds that there was dysfunction from the beginning. And all of these things can be unpacked. And so I agree with Steve you really need to, you know, lay down the the, the line and say, this is what I need. And if you can't do it, we can't be in a relationship. And if he says yes, go get professional help. The positive parts of the relationship also exist. But when it comes to your sex life about to burst, you're in deep dysfunction. mining for a green future five special episodes listen and follow on point wherever you get your podcasts did you kill marlene johnson i think you're one of the first people to have actually asked from wbur and zsp media this is beyond all repair be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. We are back, and we're talking about the the fun or the rather no fun subject of sexless relationships.
1: Yeah, we're going to have some help. We got we pull out the big guns because this, yeah, this is yeah, because this is a serious subject. So we're going to have we're going to talk with Esther Perel. She is a psychotherapist who's also the author of two amazing books, Mating in Captivity Unlocking Erotic Intelligence, and her new book it will be out in October, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. You will remember that she was a guest on our Infidelity series. And I should say she also has an amazing new podcast called Where Shall We Begin? Let's give her a buzz. Hello. Hello, Esther. Yes. Hi, it's Steve Allman. I'm here with Cheryl Strait.
2: Hi, Esther. Hello, hello, Cheryl. How are you? I'm
0: great. Listen, it's such an honor to have you on the show again. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Before we called you, we had just read the letter from About to Burst, who seems to just be in a kind of do or die um, moment in her relationship. And um, we're curious about your take on her situation. Is this something that you've seen before? And, um, and, And what do you think?
2: Um, first of all, have I seen this before all the time? And that's why I wrote the book, Mating in Captivity, because typically the idea was that if there are sexual problems, then there are relationship problems. And so you fix the relationship and the sex will follow. And sex is just kind of a a metaphor of the rest. And then I began to think, no, 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 this is a parallel narrative. The way we love and the way we desire is not necessarily one and the same. Mm. And that is what creates such a sad, sullen, sometimes tragic situation for some people where they wonder, you know, who will love me as much as this person loves me, but I can't live with a person who loves me and does not desire me and doesn't want to touch me. Mm -hmm. And yes, 50% of the people in our practices in that situation are the men, not the women.
0: Right. Well,
2: this is a big myth. You know, but it's even a bigger secret for the man, because a woman is socially more allowed to show disinterest in sexuality than a man. There is lots of social reinforcement for the desexualization of women, mm-hmm. and there is the opposite pressure on men. So it is true that it's important to say he is not sexual with her. We don't know if he has a luscious fantasy life, if he has a porn life, if he has other women. But what we do know is that for this man, there is a split. Yeah. between love and sex. And that this is not just painful to her, this is often very, very painful for the person experiencing the split as well. Okay. And that's a very important thing to understand is that this is, guy is not doing this because that's what he wants to do.
1: Yeah.
2: It's not because they don't love, it's not because they have a fear of commitment or a fear of intimacy. It's that there is something in the way that they love that makes it harder for them to also make love to the woman they love because making love to someone requires something else it's a different set of ingredients than the experience of emotional connection in and of itself and then you begin to inquire how does this man experience love in you know what makes it hard for him to experience the freedom the uh, the selfishness the unself consciousness that is required to experience pleasure, and connection with somebody.
0: Right. How do you counsel couples who come to you with this kind of problem that About to Burst is it's is presenting? Is, is it's, the the hardest? Hardest. Mm-hmm. it's the hardest. It's this, the
2: hardest. This is one of the most difficult questions, really, is that, that split. You know, it's called the love-lust split. Uh, Freud talked about it. Jack Morin has spoken about it extensively. I'm actually, you know, uh, the next generation of people trying to grapple with the love-lust split. First question I always ask in that situation, maybe not first, but one of the very strong questions is really, describe the experience to me. You know, what what happens? I want to know if there is a, a disgust factor. I want to know if there is a feeling of an incestuous response. I feel like I am with my mother, with my sister, that there is a certain feeling of familialization that has taken place that is desexualizing the partner and makes you feel like you are touching a family member. Um, And then I want to find out, you know, is there a feeling of just utter freeze? Like, it's not that they don't initiate, it's that they just cannot. Now, that doesn't mean they can't touch. They often are very affectionate. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of touch, which is the question I had on this couple. Is there affection and physical touch, but not erotic touch? And that's when you know that you are sometimes, that you have toppled into the side of it's a family connection. It's a family touch. It's the way we touch with people that we feel very close to, but not sexual with. It's like it goes literally from something pleasurable to something that makes them cringe mm-hmm. because it's as if you have crossed that forbidden line, emotionally speaking, that translates directly sexually. You ask them, tell me how you were loved so that I can understand how you make love.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, tell me how you were loved. The kinds of questions I ask have to do with where did you learn to love, of course, and with whom. But tell me, were, were, were the adults that took care of you protecting you, or did you have to flee for protection? Were you Were they there to attend to some of your needs, or did you have to attend to their needs? Hmm. Were you allowed to be greedy sometimes to want a bigger piece of the cake, or did you have to just take what was enough for sustenance, and who decided how much sustenance was enough
1: so uh, I want to ask you just as you were talking, Esther, a couple of questions came up for me the The first has to do with the capacity that about to burst partner either has or seems not to have to even engage in the work of opening up and talking about how he was loved and how he is unable to love. Um, my first question is, is about to burst really out of luck here because what you're talking about is a certain openness to the process of admitting and talking about openly very painful parts of his past that without access to those you can't hope to understand the nature of what he's struggling with and trying to connect erotically to his partner
2: so i typically in those situations will uh, work with about to burst and i will say i would here's here's a letter we can write because the conversation he's gonna you know you're gonna get what you've just described to me so imagine you basically just write to him and you just tell him look this is not something we've been able to talk about, and yet we need to do something about it because if it doesn't change, if we continue as is, there's going to be bad consequences for us. Right. I can't imagine that you feel good about this. And I can imagine that when we talk about it, shame comes up. You feel like you're a loser maybe. You feel like you're not a real man. You feel like I am uh, overpowering you. You feel like you have nothing to say. You don't know yourself why this is happening. So I, I just want you to sit with this. You do not have to respond to this letter. But I want you to know that I'm prepared to do what the work we need to do. And I want you to know that I can only imagine how bewildered you are at your own block. Of course, on occasion, it would really help me if you didn't feel so bad about yourself that you can't feel bad for me either.
0: Right. Mm -hmm.
2: Right? That your shame is is so great and you feel so bad about what's happening to you that you can't just on occasion just say to me, I know it must be really hard for you too, darling. Yeah. That is probably the most important thing. If I know that you at least feel bad for me, I, I can still hold on to something.
0: Well, so let's dig into this because she she does say, um, you know, when I talk to him about it, he cries at my pain and says he's sorry. He wants us to have an amazing sex life together. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, he shuts down. So, it, you know, he's saying he's he has empathy for her, but he's he seems incapable of taking that deeper.
2: So we know he's feeling very bad. He feels bad for you and he wants to promise something. So you tell him, can we talk about sex? Let's not talk about the sex we don't have. Let's talk about sexuality. What do you know about your sexual biography? You know, when you think about experiences that have been exciting, pleasurable, peak for you, what were they like? Were they with people that that knew you well or were they with people who, you know, who had no idea who you actually were? Give me a sense of what have been the experiences. These things tell you a heck of a lot about a person's erotic scripts. Mm -hmm. The way I describe it is this. A little child sits on the lap of the parents. And if all goes well, Mm. at some point, very early on, the kid will want to get off the lap and first they crawl and then they walk away in order to go and to play and to discover and to be curious and to be exploratory. And every little child will turn around and will look at the adult that is standing there. And if the adult says, kiddo, the world's a great place. Go ahead. There's so much to discover. Go for it. I'm here. Mm -hmm. Usually the kid turns away and goes to look further. And they are experiencing connection and separateness at the same time. Security and adventure at the same time. Mm -hmm. They experience the fundamental dualities of life in a seamless way. But if the parent says to the child, and this is where the love-lust split starts to be created, kiddo, I'm anxious. I'm lonely. I'm worried. Don't we have everything we need, just you and I? What's so great out there? Whatever the definition that says to the child without ever having to say it in words, come back. Then there are three major responses that most children will have. Response number one is the child that comes right back because I would rather lose a part of me than lose my connection to you. Mm -hmm. It is the child that knows that when the parent touches them, they are more asking for something than giving something. Mm. Child number two doesn't come back right away. He's zesty. He's curious. He wants to stay out there a little longer. And is often the adult that will say in the beginning there was no problem. But as intimacy increases, often desire drops. Why? Because these people experience the intimacy, the love, the connection with an extra burden. And when we feel so beholden to the person that we love, we don't know how to leave them in order to experience our own pleasure and our own excitement. We don't know how to be inside ourselves and with the other at the same time, which is what you need when you make love to someone you love.
0: And then theres a th- is there a third person?
2: The third one never comes back. Yeah. There's nothing to come back for. They may, have been, they may have luscious, passionate life, but very little stability, very little anchoring, very little security.
1: Well, I, I, as you were talking about those examples of the first uh, kid who goes away for a second but sees that the parent is devastated and, and returns to the parent. And you said, the, this is a child who learns that in order to have safety and security, they have to give up a part of themselves. And as you were saying that, Esther, I was thinking, how much is it important to actually provide some counsel and get some information out of, in this case, about to burst, the letter writer herself, since what she's describing essentially is, I'm in this relationship. And for many of the people listening, they're going to say four years of being a a balloon that's about to burst in misery, because Mm -hmm. the one thing that you cherish most deeply and need is like, as you need oxygen, is kept from you every day. They're going to say, get out of there. And my question Mm -hmm. to you is, is about Tabers' experience and the way that her love narrative and erotic narrative formed around her parents at issue here? Because I see somebody that she
2: stays, 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 but she gives up a part of herself
1: in order to stay.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yes. The answer is potentially yes. You want to know what is so unique in the way that he loves her? Is this the first time she feels so loved. You know, the the truth is that many of the couples where the man avoids sex, they are wonderful men. They know to love you like very few men know to love you. They really knew how to forego a part of themselves in order to secure the connection with their mommy. Yeah. And so I've seen women take this for 25 years. These men really know to give it to you, but they just know to give it emotionally, which is what many women have wanted, love, appreciate, and wonder, where else am I going to go find a guy who is that nice, that kind, you know, makes me coffee every morning, thinks in advance, calls my mother when she's in the hospital. I mean, it goes on and on.
0: Well I think it's interesting too that um you know there are also going to be uh, listeners out there especially straight women uh you know who are involved in relationships where they think well I wish you know I wish that that's what my guy did instead of only just one sex. <laughs> I mean the the other batch of letters we have are from women saying you know the only emotional vulnerability that my my partner shares with me is, you know, he, he he's intimate via sex, but not via right. conversation or right. showing love or, you know, so it is, it is an interesting dynamic.
2: Of course. Yeah. Of course. So there isn't one, you know, the question is not that they haven't had penetrative sex. The question is that it seems that they are sexless. And for that, I would say... Keep him as your best friend.
0: Right. And go find a lover. But
2: either find a lover, you know, by having a different marriage or a different committed relationship, yeah. whichever way you want. But the notion that you are a young woman who's going to allow that de over an entire lifetime is right. extraordinarily painful and a very high price to pay for both men and women.
1: I have one more question about this. I want to just press on this a little bit harder, Esther, because we we focused on this guy and his narrative. And to me, a, a more substantial or an equally important question are for all the people who are those balloons about to burst, maybe not as extreme as this case. And what I'm getting at here is, maybe her love narrative the love lust division in her conception of how she's going to seek out each of those the split is really residing within her that she doesn't feel because of how she was I know, parented
2: i know i know what you're asking but i'm going to i'm i i know it's a possibility but i think i'm going to focus on something slightly different by now this woman when she approaches this man after having for years been the one to to give him and try to pleasure him and hope that that would turn him on and the whole thing, when she approaches him, she probably doesn't invite, she demands. And he doesn't feel like she's inviting, he feels pressure. This is what generally women tell you, actually. But of course, that doesn't mean that she's a demanding woman. After four years, you become a shrew you become, uh, uh, you know, needy, which is the version that the women tell the men. You know, you you are made to be needy. You didn't start out needy. But when you are deprived like that over the long term, uh, of course you become needy. So I don't see this as an internal quality of this woman that comes out of her history. I see this as the outcome of an interaction and a dynamic in a relationship. Now, when she then starts to feel needy, you bet that it's going to connect to other experiences in her history when she felt unseen, unattended to, and things like that. But it's more an outcome than a cause, if I can put it like that. But yes, I think that you can definitely say to this woman, look... You will have learned from this man how you want to be loved and what love can be like and how abundant and beautiful it can be. You will also have learned from this man that there are parts of yourself that are really important to you and that nobody gets to claim them and that women are allowed to claim that part of themselves. Yeah. That this actually has never been a reason that was good enough for women to want to change their life. And that it is totally in your sovereignty to want to affirm them, to meet them and to be with the man who desires you and that you want both love and desire in the same relationship and that you deserve that like any woman and any man deserve that.
0: Listeners, we have found Esther Perel to be so interesting and so insightful on this issue that we've decided to turn this into two episodes on sexless relationships. Please come back next week to hear part two of sexless relationships and a lot more from our wonderful guest, Esther Perel. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR Our producer is Michelle Siegel Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin and our editorial director is Samantha Hennig We record the show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon Our engineer is Josh Millman Our theme song is by Liz Weiss and other music is by the Portland band called Wonderly
1: Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please, we beg of you, send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com.